to episode 51 of the While She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about designing garment patterns with my guest, Christine Haynes. Christine is a Los Angeles-based sewing author, teacher, and pattern designer with her own line of self-published vintage-inspired sewing patterns. She's written four books, How to Speak Fluent Sewing, Skirts and Dresses for First-Time Sewers, The Complete Photo Guide to Clothing Construction, and Chicken Simple Sewing, and has written extensively for sewing magazines and blogs. Christine teaches sewing both in person in Los Angeles and at conferences, as well as online. Christine Haynes, welcome. Thanks, Abby. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great talking to you. And you're in Paris right now. And I wonder about home sewing in France. What is the sewing scene like there? I know you you go um, every summer, so I feel like you might have a little bit of insight into what sewing is like in France. Um, yeah, I do uh, somewhat. Um, I don't do too much sewing while I'm here. Um, it is definitely meant to be a holiday. Um, but the, um, I, I have written an, an article for Sew News in the past about the sewing scene, and I'm actually writing an article um, for a future um, edition of Seamwork by Colette Patterns about the sewing scene in Paris um, and places to go. Um, the, I follow a lot of French blogs and a lot of French Instagrammers, um, but I'm not, I don't know that many of them personally, to be honest. Um, I know Julie, uh, that everyone knows as Julie Bobin, um, and she's hilarious. And um, last year she took me fabric shopping, and uh, we're planning to do that again. Um, and I know a lot of the main um, sewing stores that are here that a lot of people know as well. Um, though, to my delight, last week when we arrived, um, we always stay at the same apartment. Um, and last week when we got here, we were walking up to the apartment, and there was a brand new sewing place literally across the street from our apartment. Um, and I squealed with excitement. <laughs> There's a fabric store now across the street. And uh, went in on our first day, and it's one of the few places in the city that you can actually take classes and rent the machines by the hour, which was the first question I asked, uh, because I don't bring a machine with me, and there's not a machine in the apartment. So if the mood strikes me, it is across the street, which is really awesome. Yeah, and I think the fact that one just opened in the year you know, since you were last there. Yeah, is a they sign. opened in October, we asked them, yeah. Yeah, so that's a sign that things are sort of picking up. There's interest. They're going to have enough customers to support a store like that. Yeah, there's another store that was here a few years ago called Sweatshop, and um, they were almost exclusively a um, classroom and a place where you could rent by the hour. And I made a dress there once a few years ago. Um, but they didn't last, and I think the reason they didn't last is they didn't have any other way to make money. They had no, basically no retail um, and they sold, you could buy like a cup of tea and a piece of cake while you were sewing, but they really didn't have much else to, to make money off of. And I think that that was their, their demise in the end. Um, and there's one other place in town whose name is completely escaping me. That's just East of the bestie and you can take classes there as well, but it's really, um, not the norm. It, there's lots of le- lovely places to buy fabric, but not as many places to actually sew in-house. And I'm sure that's somewhat to do with the cost of square footage. You know, yeah. it's expensive. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Sort of similar to New York City. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, cool. So you grew up in Saugatuck, Michigan. Is that right? I, I did. Yeah. It's so, an amazing place. Yeah. yeah. You've described it as an artistic community. And I just wondered what it was like there when you were growing up. It, I feel so incredibly fortunate that my parents moved us there. I was 10 when we moved there. I was originally born in Detroit um, in the early 70s, and we moved to um, a beachy community called New Buffalo, which is the almost the, the last town on Lake Michigan uh, before Indiana. It's like the southernmost point. Um, and my extended family still lives there. And we moved from there to Saugatuck when I was 10. Um, and it, I think it was the greatest thing my parents ever did for my brother and I. Um, Saugatuck, if, if, if those people, that, there's literally like 1,500 people in town. So I'm assuming everyone listening has no idea. Um, except Rebecca Rinquist, who you had on your show, um, who's also from Michigan, who I went to college with. Um, she will know where it is, but most people listening probably don't know. Um, it's a very tiny little town. 
that explodes in the summer with Chicago tourists. And it was founded mostly as a artist colony. It's where a lot of people from Chicago came to paint in uh, plein air so they could paint outdoors and in the nude and not get chastised. And it grew up around that sort of um, artistic community uh, as its base. There's tons of galleries um, and there's an enormous um, gay population there. So it's kind of also like a gay resort. Um, so like growing up down the road from my house was a huge gay resort and disco and there's always drag queens around. Um, and that was totally normal for me. Um, it wasn't until my early teens that I realized that all the neighboring communities didn't also have drag queens and art galleries as the main drag in town. Um, and it was a really open and, um, artistic and embracing community to grow up in. It wasn't diverse in ethnicity, but it was diverse in every other way. And what did your parents do? My dad was a banker by um, trade. That was, my parents, neither of them went to college. Um, it was that generation where they got jobs. And to, you know, my mom was a, a housewife um, until we were, mm, yeah, somewhere in like, our early teens. She got a job as a secretary. Um, she did go to floral design school um, and owned a florist when we were really young, but then gave it up to be practical and got a job as a secretary. And my dad was um, similarly, um, didn't go to college and worked at a bank. And he did um, financing for boat and um, car loans. So he would drive around West Michigan and finance, uh, you know, process loans at, at marinas and, and car dealerships and stuff like that. But um, again, like on the side, he, like my mom with her floral design, he was an amazing photographer, uh, which is where I picked up the love of photography at a really young age. Yeah. It was a different generation then. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly, there wasn't an opportunity to have an internet-based business, for example, which no. is what you and I both have. So, Yeah, it's true. And I think that a lot of my friends' uh, parents um, encouraged them to do the opposite of what my parents encouraged my brother and I to do. They both, you know, put their passions aside to have practical jobs to raise a family. And they told my brother and I really early on, which I think sometimes they regretted encouraging at a certain point when we were always borrowing money. But they, um, they said, you know, you should, you guys should follow what you love and find a way to make a living doing what you love because they were never given that opportunity to do that. And my brother and I both did. So right. I went to, I went to art school and he's a chef. Oh, wow. Yeah. You yeah. Sure, totally did. Yeah, we both did. Yeah. yeah. So you went, as you said, you went to school with Rebecca Rehnquist at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. I and did. then after graduation, uh, um, it sounds like you um, had a career working in museums, doing something sort of different from what you do now. So tell me about that phase. Yeah, I, I honestly, I've been sewing my whole life, and it was never something that I thought I would pursue as a profession. Um, I grew up in this arts community, so it was something... Um, I knew I would end up in the arts. It was just totally a natural fit for me. So I was always taking oil painting classes and throwing ceramics. And um, my mom and my grandmothers were um, really great seamstresses. And so that was just another thing that was in the, the circle of arts. Um, but when I went to school, it started with a love of photography and then it turned into a love of film. So at the Art Institute, I mostly did um, Super 8 and 16 millimeter film. Um, and at the Art Institute, you don't have to choose a major as an undergrad. I was an undergrad while Rebecca was a grad student. Um, and so you didn't have to choose um, a field of study. They want to produce interdisciplinary artists. Um, so I was able to do all those different things. The one department that you have to choose is the fashion department. And you are on a very set path. You have very set regimented classes that you have to take. And that was really unappealing to me. So I didn't actually pursue fashion in school. Um, but then when I graduated, you know, I also knew with a degree mostly in film that I wasn't taking a traditional film path, that I was shooting, you know, more gallery-based um, film, if you will, like something that would end up as like an installation, not something that I would go into the Hollywood industry because I wasn't trained for that at, the, at school at all and that wasn't my desire. So 
I ended up working um, when I was in school at one of the campus galleries. And then when I graduated, I ended up working for the school itself, um, producing the BFA and MFA exhibition shows at the end of the year. Um, and then after that, I worked in the fine arts department at the um, University of Chicago. And then when I moved to LA, I worked for a private art dealer. And then later I worked um, as, as the communications coordinator at the Museum of Contemporary Art here. I say here, as if I'm in LA. It feels like I'm in LA. <laughs> and here in Los Angeles, right. but I'm in Paris. Back home in Los Angeles. Yeah, so back, home, back home, yeah. Do you feel like um, there were things that you learned during those years that you still, that carry over to what you do now? I mean, it's very different what you do now. It's still arts focused, but in many ways it's different, but I'm betting, I know in my own life, things that I did that were completely unrelated to what I do now are still, you know, they're still here with me and they, they still help me. So I just wonder if there were things that carried over. Absolutely. Um, all of that was unbeknownst to me, really solid training in, um, you know, the left part of my brain, like being the communications coordinator at MOCA was such an education um, and just, you know, really basic things of, of PR and marketing. Um, yeah, I mean, all those, like, I got really good at it. Excel. Uh, I'm, re- I'm really organized. All of those sort of practical, businessy things that didn't have an application necessarily at the time, um, I certainly use now. Yeah, like, I'm able to, I think that's sort of why at this point I'm still running as a one person business is I'm able to do my website and, you know, pulling uh, on my dad's lessons of, you know, organizing and accounting and all of those things sort of are, are applicable now to my business, which I wouldn't have really, I didn't plan it that way. It just really helped that way for sure. Yeah. Right. And so were you, I mean, I know you've always been interested in clothing mm-hmm. and in looking at, you know, what people were wearing and thinking about fashion, the fashion uh, degree didn't seem appealing to you, but um, I'm sort of thinking that, you know, since you were maybe 18 or so, you've been sewing clothes. And um, I wonder during those years when you were working other jobs, were you sewing all your own clothes then? Were you making clothes to sell as kind of a, a side business? Or were you planning on, you know, an exit strategy at some point to be able to, to do that more? Um, yes and no. Um, I was definitely making a lot of my own clothes at that time. Um, it definitely started around 18. That's when I bought my first serger and that was a real change for me to be able to sew, um, in a more professional way. Um, but I never thought about it as an, as a career move at any point, um, until, um, through all of that time, like when I was in school, I was just making my own clothes. It was largely a means to an end, um, being obsessed with fashion and not really having the money to, to buy all of the things that I wanted to buy. So I was supplementing my vintage, uh, wardrobe with handmade. And that was just something I did. It was never, um, meant to be a building block. There was no exit strategy or anything like that. And then when I was in school, uh, one of my part-time jobs was waiting tables at a Thai restaurant in Chicago. And um, one of my fellow waitresses, um, whose name is Sue Daly, um, she and her friend Kathleen, were. we were really all frustrated artists that there was nowhere to put our work that um, wasn't a gallery. And at the time, craft fairs were like, dried floral wreaths and wooden painted teddy bears and things. <laughs> <laughs> there's not that there's anything wrong with that. I remember but, those uh, years well. Yes. Yeah. And you had to submit slides <laughs> oh, to yeah. get in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that was the norm. And um, Kathleen and Sue were like, well, screw that crap. This is ridiculous. And they started the Renegade Craft Fair. And um, so I just innocently made like 50 wrap skirts, like 70s inspired wrap skirts. And um, put them out on a garment rack at, at Renegade. And I sold all of them. And I thought, oh, that was really fascinating. And that was my, that was my big entry into making a living doing this. It was completely random and not uh, an intentional maneuver in any way. It was just 
I, I didn't make any of that money back. I took all, I was so excited about making money. I went around to all the other booths and spent all my money <laughs> at, <laughs> at everybody else's booths and went home with a pile of really cool handmade stuff. I didn't think like, oh, this is really smart. I mean, nobody had like business cards or any of that crap at that point. I mean, this was all pre Etsy even. So, um, but that definitely got a, a bug in my butt and I thought, oh, that's really fascinating. Um, but I still, you know, I still had a day job and I had to pay the rent and all of that stuff. Yeah. And so I know Potter Craft, who is the publisher of, is it Chic or is it Chic and Simple it, Sewing? It's Chic. Yeah. I totally said that wrong in the introduction. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I think, I think you Why can Why do probably... I, I don't, I, okay. When I see that word, I think it's said, it, like, I think you're supposed to say a chick. That's so that's weird. Okay. Yeah, I, no, I've just fine. been saying that wrong I'm in my sure mind. I'm sure you're not the only person that says oh my that. God. Okay, embarrassed now. All right. Anyway, um, so I know that they're, so they're the publisher of Chic and Simple Sewing, and that was your first book. Um, mm-hmm. And they reached out to you, and I wonder how they found you. They found me through, um, I had written an article for Craft Scene, which at the time was a printed publication. Oh, yeah, uh, I was a subscriber. Yeah. So this was after I had moved to Los Angeles. Um, I, uh, I didn't know anyone in LA, literally not a single person when I moved there. Um, and I thank God met a couple of amazing people right off the bat. One of them is Jenny Ryan. Um, and she started a thing called felt club. Um, and it was kind of like a renegade craft fair sort of event, but it started really small and she was friends, um, and still is friends with, um, people that were running make magazine and they were about to start a a new offshoot called craft. And, um, there was some parties that we were all at, um, and I met Carla who was going to be the editor of, of craft and she just, you know, casually said, like, oh, hey, you know, if you want to write something. So I wrote an article for Craft, and one of the editors at um, Pottercraft saw the article and sent me an email and asked me if I wanted to submit a book proposal. And I thought it was a freaking joke. I just couldn't believe it. Like, I got an email. You know, you get the email, and you see, like, blank at, and then the – so it's, like, whatever at randomhouse.com. I'm like, this is ridiculous. It just – I just could not believe that that was happening. And I waited 24 hours to reply, so it wasn't just, like, an all caps, ah. yes, 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 you know. Right. right. Yeah. So, so you really – it's not as though books were on the brain. You were, you yeah. know, out in L.A. writing this article through a friend, you know, yeah. connection from a friend. And the, yeah, the editor like of – to me at all. I mean, it was yeah. awesome, but it was not like, this is a way to find an editor at a book. No, no, no. Right. It wasn't yeah. as though this was a means no. to an end. Right. The editor at Craft, that was Carla Sinclair. She, she's Mark Fraunfelder's wife. Yep. Is that who that exactly. is? Okay. Yep, exactly. That's yep. cool. And those guys are friends with Jenny and I met them at, at a party in Echo Park. And that, that was how that happened. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So cool. So, all right. So you, you got this book deal. Um, and you, you know, started, so the book has uh, sewing patterns for clothing that are very sort of simple, easy yeah. to do for a beginner. Um, it gave you a taste of writing a pattern, um, which is interesting to me because that's exactly what happened to me. My first book was also my first taste of writing a pattern. <laughs> Prior to that, I was making things right. and I was selling those things, but I wasn't selling the instructions for those things. And I wasn't even yeah. writing those instructions down. I would create the pattern, you know, templates and I would just keep them for myself. And so then I, you know, you, you give them out into the world and it's like, yeah. oh, hey, this is interesting and fun. So you, did that plant the seed to say, I want to start my own pattern line? Not really at that point. I was still doing um, ready-to-wear. So what happened when I moved to Los Angeles, I worked for the private art dealer. And then after doing that for um, about nine months, I decided I didn't enjoy that so much. And I, um, my now ex-husband had a, a, a lucrative job. And I thought, well, this is a good moment for me to sort of branch and do something else. So I was doing ready-to-wear. And I had no intentions at all of giving away my trade secrets, if you will, which is so dumb because there's no secret in sewing a straight seam. But um, there's, you know, at the time I had no intentions of doing anything but selling people the finished product. But the book deal came right at the collapse of the economy. And I found that the, for me, sort of the heyday of like the renegade days and the independent boutique selling 
two, $300 dresses was definitely declining. And it was a very well-timed moment. Um, so the book came out and I closed the ready to wear stuff. And Jenny Ryan was just then opening a place called Homac. And she said, Hey, do you want to teach sewing here? And again, like writing the book, I had no idea how to even teach. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and so it wasn't really until after years of all of that that I thought about doing sewing patterns. Sewing patterns to me just seemed completely, I didn't know anyone that was doing it that wasn't the big four pattern companies. And I had, I really had zero idea as to where to start. Um, and it wasn't until Colette was started making their own patterns that I thought that seemed like something that an independent person could even do. It just seemed completely like big business inconceivable. But, yeah, yeah, totally. And it's interesting yeah. how, right, so, so you saw Sari start and then yep. you were like, okay, now I see it might be possible. So you did a Kickstarter. I did, yeah. launch your first two patterns in the summer of 2011. And yeah. you had 155 backers who pledged yeah. $6,864, which was exceeding your $6,500 goal. And yeah. I wonder, what is Kickstarter like? What was it? I mean, oh you God. did it. You did it. You succeeded. Your project yeah. was funded. Um, and you got your business off the ground using Kickstarter. So tell us about that. Um, I'm not going to say it was... I mean, I think the word terrible is strong. But it was a very challenging experience. And people ask me all the time about, should I do Kickstarter? And I'm incredibly honest about the pros and cons of the experience. Um, for me, I really literally had no other way to launch my business. I had left my now ex-husband at the time. I was teaching in the evenings and on the weekends and working my full-time day job at Mocha um, at the same time. And I was, I mean, I was working, you know, 70, 80 hours a week just to like make ends meet. Cause I had no money. I mean, just to be completely honest, I had, I was left with five figures of debt from the divorce. I had nothing. And I uh, was living in a cockroach infested apartment in downtown Los Angeles. Like this was the real deal. And I thought I could do so much more. I've got this little start with the book. I have an audience and I just didn't want to lose the audience that was already there. Um, and Kickstarter had just sort of started. And I thought, you know, the worst case scenario is this doesn't work and I'm exactly where I am right now. Um, so I did it and you know, it, it did its job in that I got the money and it funded the first two patterns that I produced. Um, and that is an amazingly awesome um, situation. And I'm incredibly grateful to every person that helped make that possible because it, it really wouldn't have been possible without that. Um, but the, the challenge of, asking your friends and family and strangers for money on a daily basis and then fulfilling the um, prizes or whatever you want to call them at the end. Um, are, it was incredibly hard and much, much, much harder than I ever thought it would be given that I was still teaching and still working full time and now producing a line of patterns and presumably hand making thank you gifts for all these people. It was much harder than I thought it would be. But if that's the only way to do it, it did work. So it can, it can work. You just have to be realistic about how hard it's going to be. So, so you started with the first two patterns and which two patterns were those? The Chelsea and the Derby. And okay. uh, they were modified versions of my more popular ready to wear garments. Okay. So they were in some way the trade secrets. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a dumb thing to say, but yeah, I mean, yes. And essentially, yeah, they were two of my most popular things that people were buying at boutiques. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I changed them somewhat to make them a little more interesting as sewing patterns. And because when you're, you know, you probably know this from your own path, but when you're doing something and you're the only one that whose hands have to touch it, you don't think about the steps, you know, one, two, three, four, and, um, so when I had to sort of write them out as a, as a logical path for a sewer to make at home, I had to really think about how they were going to do it and what would make sense, the order in which to explain. And so they kind of naturally evolved from there. And I knew I wanted to make two views for each pattern. So that was also like a way to sort of take the original and sort of modify it to something a little bit different. 
Yeah. So you work with a pattern grader who Mm -hmm. grades your patterns to both make them, you know, digitized as well as make them different sizes. Am I saying that right? That's exactly the right lingo. Yes. Okay. So, um, and I think that's important for people to know only because, um, I know when I first started doing this, it seems as though you need to know and be able to do everything mm-hmm. yourself. And if you can't, then you can't do it at all. Yeah. And that is not the case. Many, many of the designers that indie designers that we have all come to love and know and so with, um, do employ contractors to help with things. And one yeah. of those things is grading. Another thing is illustration. So you yep. also work, if I'm uh, saying this right, with an illustrator who yep. draws out the step diagrams, step out diagrams, and also creates the adorable ladies that are on the yep. cover of the patterns. So yep. if you can't draw, you know, <laughs> the lady on the cover, if you can't, uh, yep. you know, illustrate the steps, there are people who specialize in that, who are amazing at that, who become a member of your team on a contract basis, who can do those things with you. Yeah, that's 100% accurate for me personally. I I can draw fine. I mean, I have a, a degree in fine art, but to draw very, very clear step-by-step drawings in a digital way... Um, I could make it happen, but it would take me twice as long and they wouldn't look quite as nice. Um, so yeah, I use, uh, my friend Holly, this was another just wonderful chance experience. I started teaching at So LA in Los Angeles and one of the fellow teachers is my friend Holly and, um, just through conversation, it was like, oh, yeah, she also does graphic design and, you know, that kind of thing. And she very much downplayed what she could do. And then I found out she had done some of the illustrations in one of the Built by Wendy books, um, which I owned. So I dug up my book and found her name in there and looked at her drawings and said, oh, my God, I I need you <laughs> because I can sort of make this happen, but not nearly as well and not nearly as fast. So like the Sylvie dress uh, pattern that just came out, I give her, I gave her really, you know, basic sketches. And because she's a brilliant sewer, I don't have to explain things to her. Like the right side always should be the same color and the wrong side should always be the same color. And, um, you know, all those things. So I, she knows what everything is. If I say this is understitching, this is a base stitch. She, she understands where it's supposed to go and how it's supposed to look. And, um, she, she did those, all the illustrations for the Sylvie, uh, pattern, the, all the step-by-steps and the ladies, she did them in like three days. Um, and I would, it would take me like a month to make them and they wouldn't even look as good as they do that she does it. So I give her sketches. And then for the ladies on the front, I give her drawings of the dresses and then I give her pieces from, um, sources. So like I will send her a, a photo of shoes that I like, or, um, you know, I like that, you know, her hand is in this place or I like this particular hairdo and then she puts it all together and makes the ladies. And then there's a little bit of back and forth with all of them, but she gets them about 95% right at the first try on everything. She's amazing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to voice that because I think that that's something that I didn't, I misunderstood when I started. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I just, I just didn't think it was possible. Like I didn't realize that uh, that most people have people who work with them. And, who, and it's, yeah, it's funny to me because it never occurred to me to not hire a professional for that stuff. Um, it actually never occurred to me that, to do uh, a professional fully illustrated pattern and that I would do it. I thought that I mean, honestly never really crossed my mind that I would be the one doing that. I knew all along I was going to have to hire a professional and maybe that's because I've known artists along the way that are really good graphic designers and really good illustrators that I thought, yeah, you, you really want to hire a really good illustrator to do that. It's in talking with other designers, I've realized that that's not necessarily the norm, um, that I, I've been surprised when I speak to other people like, oh my God, you do all your step-by-steps or you do all your grading. And, um, I do, I have my hands on every single piece of it, but there, if, if there's a professional that can do it better and faster, then I, I definitely hire that person for that job, like the digitizing and the grading. There's a lot of cleanup 
after I get my files from my grader and they don't change the lines to be different dashes and they don't do any of that stuff. And sometimes they're not exactly perfect and there's a lot of cleanup, but the fact that they get them 95% there and then I have to just follow through with the final 5% um, is an enormous help. Enormous. Yeah. So do you work with distributors because, you know, your patterns are in retail stores all over mm-hmm. the country, probably in other parts of the world as well. Yeah. Um, and I know there's sort of two routes to doing this. One is um, that you have retailers set up wholesale accounts directly with you mm-hmm. and you sell them to them. Um, another way to do this is to work with the dist- with one or more distributors who s- sort of find those retail out- outlets for you. You send the patterns to the distributors and they distribute them. So which, which path have you taken? Um, up to this point, it's been entirely me with the shops directly. Um, and I really love that relationship. I care um, I really care about the shops because if if the shops don't do well, then I don't do well. It's a mutually um, beneficial experience. Um, so like with my stores, when I release a new pattern, I always offer them the PDF for free um, so that they can make a sample for their store. They can make samples for themselves and their staff um, because a sample in the store next to the pattern sells the pattern. I know this from managing a retail store that the ones you have a sample for does better. Um, so I always offer it up for free because if it sells well, then they make money and I make money. It's, it's a win-win for everybody. Um, it doesn't do them any good or me any good if the pattern just gets dusty on the shelf. So I really care about my relationship with my stores, but, um, I have been approached actually in the last couple months by, um, Brewer and Checker, two of the biggest distributors in the U S Um, And I am going to be selling through them um, later in the year. Um, And I'm, I'm mixed on it. I'm doing it to be honest, completely as a, as a business maneuver to just get more people to know my brand, but it is a little, um, it's a little hard sort of to, to grasp the idea that I won't know exactly everyone that's buying them on my website. I have a retailer's page and I, I keep it up to date as to who's been ordering. If they haven't ordered in the last two years, I take them down so that it's, it's up to date and clean. And I know all of those stores personally. Um, but I also know from formally managing a retail store that it's really, really convenient when you have to place an order with brewer and you just need like a couple pairs of scissors and some spools of thread. And you, you just want to throw, two or three patterns into the same box at the same time without having to go to my website separately and pay shipping separately from my website. So I understand the convenience factor is really big. And for that, I'm going to give it a try. Yeah. So two things about that. One is that, um, uh, I know that at Checker, um, they've recently hired somebody who is now acquiring garment patterns yep, Cora. as her job, Cora. Yeah, right. yeah. I'm, yeah, I met her at Market, and she emailed me before Market, and um, she was really, really nice. And yeah, that it's interesting that like they've made a distinct yes push move. Yeah, to say, all right, we need garment patterns um, and because that, really they yeah. deal mostly with independent quilt shops. So yep. if you're so now, right, like garment, I feel like the garment substrates are are coming into quilt shops and. Yep. Now the garment patterns are following. Um, anyway, that's just an interesting industry trend to notice. The other it thing, is. yeah, the other thing I think is interesting here, or is is important to point out here, is that when you sell, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you sell directly to uh, retailers uh, yourself, you're selling at wholesale. So you're selling at, you know, the, the, they're buying the patterns from you at. I think 50% off, you know, the regular retail price. That's Um, what I do. Right. When you work with a distributor, you're looking at 25 to 30% below wholesale. Correct. Right. And I think that's important for people to understand. So you, you know, if your pattern is $10, you're selling direct to retail, you're selling them for $5. If you are, you know, if they were wholesaling them for $5, if you're working with a distributor, it's more like, you know, three or three fifty, three dollars $3. Yeah. And the, that's, you know, it's hard to sort of wrap your head around the math of that. It, 
it, at first, the first time I did um, a distributor experience was with Cotton and Steel. Um, they're dear friends of mine, and they use my patterns all the time in their samples. And so RJR, um, they wanted to, you know, distribute some of the patterns that Cotton and Steel were using, and so they um, distributed just my Emery dress. And um, that was the first time I realized, wow, you know, they actually take another cut. And I wouldn't have priced my patterns any differently, but I'm glad that I did price them in such a way that uh, with that little extra percent off, I'm still turning a profit. Now, the profit is smaller without question, but they're also earning the work. You know, they're, they have to put it up on their website. So like for Checker, for example, they have to, um, their, their reps are wrapping them around the country and they put it up on their website. They have to store them in their warehouse. They have to pack the box. They do all the stuff that I'm doing. So they, I get why they then need to make money on the item as well. So they, they make money. I make money. Um, and that's how everyone stays in business. And hopefully the distribution is wide enough that you're making it up in volume. I mean, that's yeah. the key. And- and even if it isn't, I've just come to be okay with the idea that those particular patterns I make a little bit less on, but then it, if it broadens people to my brand, um, then that's a positive. And I'm, you know, it's not a full loss leader because I still make money on it, but um, I'm willing to make a little less to broaden my base. That's right. okay with me. Yeah. Right. And in keeping with this idea of bringing garments, uh, garment patterns, garment fabrics to local quilt shops, you're bringing dressmaking to QuiltCon. I am. I am so honored. Um, I'm also, (laughs) I'm totally flipped out a little bit as well that um, I just saw the schedule. I am doing the only garment, um, which I'm incredibly honored by. Um, They did garments the first year, um, and then the second year they didn't do any at all. And um, I had a great conversation with Heather um, at Quilt Market about, you know, how did that go? And obviously, you know, you guys made a change the second year. Um, and we actually had a brief conversation about, um, wouldn't it be awesome if like quilt con and some sort of garment con were going on side by side and all the indie designers could be together and we could do, and we both thought that's, uh, I don't, we, neither of us have time for that. Um, but how, you know, is there a way to sort of bridge this gap? Because the gap is definitely getting, smaller in, in, in recent years. And so, um, we talked about me teaching at QuiltCon, um, and I just totally assumed that she was talking to a ton of people about doing garments. Um, but then the schedule went live and I realized I'm, I'm doing the only dress. So, um, yeah, that's, it's exciting. I've taught this dress before and it is, it's, it's a successful dress for almost everybody that makes it. And, uh, if you, if you can sew at all, then you can totally make a garment. Uh, so I've, I've done that before where I've, I've had to sort of walk a quilter through the, you know, the construction of a garment instead of a blanket. Yeah. I'm thinking that in some ways, this idea of a local quilt shop that, you know, it's going to need to expand to be mm-hmm. a local, you know, it's almost like fibers shop where mm-hmm. there's going to be I mean, I feel like if you can sell yarn so that you have something for people to buy in the winter, you know, Mm -hmm. and if you can sell garment patterns and uh, garment classes um, and garment fabrics, then you you're um, going to reach out to a, a group of people who may never have come into the shop previously and then you also have quilters and you know sort of modern quilting fabrics too and if you're able to do all of those things in a way that you know fancy tiger comes to mind for example yeah then um maybe that's the survival strategy for you know quilt shops that are struggling yeah it's interesting um fancy tiger is an amazing example of diversifying in the right way um, I've definitely seen some craft shops diversify too broad um, and fail, um, you know, getting way beyond just the fiber and getting into scrapbooking and, and glitter and glue guns. If you get too broad, it's just not going to work. You can't compete with like a Joann's formula of, of store. But it, um, 
like Fancy Tiger is a perfect example. They have just the right amount of everything, and it still stays under a, a relatively tight umbrella, even though they do have both yarn and quilting weight and garment weight fabrics, um, and even some stuff slightly beyond that as well. It also helps that those um, amazing women, Amber and Jamie, that, that run Fancy Tiger are... Um, they're, they're doing all of those things as well. They quilt, they make clothes, and they knit sweaters. So it, it just illustrates that it's not all separate and that it, you, know, you, can't, you don't have to just be one or the other, that they're living examples of doing all of it. Um, and I think that, that helps their business tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to think, to think about as these models change over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you work from home. Yeah. Um, you're one lady show, as yeah. you mentioned earlier, um, yeah. in LA. So just tell us a little bit about your day. So, you know, let's say it's a, it's a random Tuesday, you know, you wake sure. up. So what happens next? Well, it depends on what is, of course, what is on the to-do list for that day. But, um, the, the usual things that are going to happen on any given day, um, if I'm working on a pattern, then I'm, I'm, working out the the actual details of the pattern. So I always wake up and have like at least two cups of black tea and some breakfast. That's like the norm. Um, I do work out of my house, um, which has its pros and cons. I know it's not for everybody um, because there's, there's no separation at all. And that can be a really bad thing for, for people. For me, I like that I don't have to go somewhere else. Um, I used to have a studio in the garment district when I did ready to wear and, um, if the mood struck me at midnight, I, it was downtown in Los Angeles and it wasn't really easy to get to. And so at home, if, if I'm inspired at midnight, I just walk over to my my space and it's right there. Um, so on a, any given day, I might be working out pattern details. I might be writing blog posts for myself or for um, the Craftsy blog. I still write for them. Um, you know, I, there's a much more administration than people think. So there's usually quite a few hours of answering emails, replying, reading contracts. Um, There was one day I got together with some people in the evening that don't really know my business very well. And, and they said, you know, what's, what'd you do today? And I said, Oh, I was really busy. And they said, Oh yeah, you know, you were sewing all day. And I said, well, well, no, actually I didn't sew today at all. Like I was negotiating contracts all day is what I was doing. So yeah. some days, some days it's that. Some days it's a meeting with my accountant, and um, you know, working through a lots and lots and lots of admin. That much more than you think. Um, not you, you know, but yeah. other people. <laughs> I think one of the things that. Um, one of the things that maybe doesn't get uh, talked about a lot is is email. I mean, just oh working God. through email. Um, it's hours and hours it's and hours, hours of email, it's, you guys. It's a it's lot amazing. of email. No, it, it's actually incredible that it can be hours and hours and hours of email. So I try really, really hard to answer every email I need to in the morning. That doesn't mean every email in my inbox. Some of them can wait a day. Um, but like the ones that really need to be replied to that day, I get to them that morning. And then I really try to close my laptop and not look at it again until like late afternoon or early evening, like somewhere around four or five. And then it's, it's again, hours of, of emails. And it could be something as simple as I don't understand step five yeah. of your Emory dress. And, and then I reply and it's not a team of people answering those emails. It's literally me. And it could be a store trying to order on my website that forgot their password. Um, and that can be, four or five emails back and forth. Like I, you know, reset their password and then they try it and then they, they got it and I write back. Okay, good. You're in. Okay. Here's your order. I mean, it's just tons and tons and tons of that. I don't want to sound ungrateful, but it is, but it's not at all about being ungrateful, but it is about like, it sounds like, like you, like me, I, I do answer every email personally. I want to answer every email personally. And I do spend time with each person Me too. Um, and I want to, but, Me too. Yeah. but I just think it's hard for people to understand that 
it is often, you know, at least two hours a day. Sometimes, you know, like for example, the day that I send out my email newsletter on Wednesdays, it's the whole day. It's the whole day. Yeah. I spend the whole day responding to emails. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's amazing how, uh, under, underestimated that part of, of it is. And yeah, it's definitely, so my, my days, it's different every day, depending on what that, that task is for the day that really needs to get done. It could be going back and forth with my illustrator. It could be working with my grader. It could be sourcing fabric for the next pattern. It could be any of those things, um, depending on what's happening that day. But the constant that happens every day is definitely um, hours of email and checking in on my website, just making sure everything's going the way it should go and working the way it should work and things are in stock and packing orders. I This is one part of my business that um, some dear friends of mine were convincing me I really need to outsource, but I still literally pack every order myself um, and seal the box and take, take it to the post office and... Um, as of now, I've never messed up an order because I did it myself. I've never screwed up any orders yet. Now, if I outsource it, they're going to take a cut of my pattern uh, profit and they may mess stuff up. And those are risks I'm not really willing to take yet, but there will come a time when I'm going to have to rethink that part. And obviously, while I'm in Paris right now, um, my dear, dear friend Haley uh, is fulfilling all of your patterns for you because I'm not sending them from here. But, um, yeah, those things take hours, hours. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to make sure we talked about that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I think that's important because it's it's something people don't talk about. I think people think we just are sketching and sewing all day, but we do, but there's so much other stuff too. I mean, like last year I changed my shipping um, to include first class because it was just proving to be too expensive for a single pattern for in the U.S. I was shipping everything with a flat rate bubble envelope, which is $6.10. That's too much for a single pattern. Um, but it was the easiest for me to only have like one kind of packing material in the house. So in order to change it to first class, I had to get something for out of the U.S. and something for in the U.S. and I had to weigh all of that. So that's, that, that took like a week of like sourcing the material, changing the weight on my, like that just, all of that takes days and days and yeah. days. Yeah. 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 And that's part of what it is to be in business. Yeah. You need yeah. to either hire someone to do it or you need to love doing it. Um, yeah. and it's weird. It, I weirdly love those things. I do too. No, I yeah. totally it's do part too. of it. You know, it's part of it. And so yeah. anyway, I wanted to make sure we talked about that. And, um, <laughs> Uh, so I, I wanted to just um, uh, have my last question sort of be a little bit about the Emory dress. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the Emory dress was in some way a turning point. Am I right? Definitely. Oh, my God. Totally. So yeah. tell us about the launch and how you knew it was a turning point. Um, well, the first two patterns, the Derby and the Chelsea um, like I said, they were based off of stuff from my ready to wear line. And there was, um, a definite gap between releasing those two and releasing Emery. Um, and part of that was just being busy and figuring out what the heck I was doing and, you know, all of that stuff, um, getting set up as a business and figuring it all out. And then in that window of time, um, I, I realized, I started to really familiarize myself with what, I don't want to use the word competition because I don't think of the fellow indie designers as competitions. Most of them are very good friends, um, which is another thing I think it's important to point out. A lot of people think we don't know each other. We all know each other. Um, I wouldn't be in business if it weren't for Sari's help. She gave me like the direct phone number of people I still work with today. Um, Jen from Grainline and I email usually at least once a week. Um, we all know each other and we're all helpful and supportive of each other. I changed my whole shipping website software because uh, of a whole bunch of people's suggestions, um, my fellow designers. And so I started to look out there, like what was out there and what was I enjoying wearing? And my favorite silhouette is just the classic fit and flare, uh, which is what the Emery is, which is kind of 50s, kind of 60s, depending on how you style it. They, it's definitely both of those eras, not just one or the other. Um, and I honestly was really intimidated to make something so tailored because the first two patterns aren't tailored at all. They have a lot of 
intricate details, but they're not tailored. And um, I'm 100% self-taught. And it was a little terrifying to release something that was so tailored um, and so sort of classic. But I realized that the indie scene didn't have that pattern out there. Um, there were things that were similar. Um, the peony from Colette is really similar, but it's a boat neck and it's not a full skirt. Um, and the darts are quite different. Um, and there are other ones that are, that are similar, but not really just like sort of the straightforward fit and flare. So, um, I did it and I released it and, um, the initial response was really positive, um, I did like a pre-sale for like a week and I sold more of the emery in that pre-sale than I had sold of my previous two dresses to date, which was, had been like a couple years at that point. Um, and I thought that was a really good sign, but no one had used it yet. <laughs> so there's that terrifying moment between sale and use that I think I'm, I think a lot of us, a lot of pattern designers go through where you're, you kind of feel sick to your stomach until people start using it and do they like it and does it fit well and all of that stuff. Um, and, uh, it was so well received, um, that during the time from when I released it until Marianne came out, which was my next pattern, I had written, uh, Oh my God, a couple books in that window of time. And the Emery solely kept my business afloat. I, I like that basically paid my rent every month. All it was just, it's yeah. I could never have predicted that it would go so well and people still, it still sells more than any other pattern. Right. Yeah. It's crazy. It's definitely the turning point for sure. Yeah. It's the cash cow and it's interesting how that happens, you know, and I, before I have a, a particular pattern that works that way for me and, and before I had that experience, I didn't really understand what that was about, what the term cash cow really meant. <laughs> but in all honesty, it's like that one pattern yeah. so outweighs yeah. the sales of any other pattern. Yeah. And it's more than just the sales too. It was, it definitely exposed me to people that didn't know who I was before. Um, so I'm even aside from the fact that it paid my income for like a year and a half, um, it just opened me up to lots of people who didn't know the the Chelsea or the Derby because those are both very specific silhouettes that are not for everybody. Um, they're really flowy and full baby doll style, and that's not what everyone wants to wear. And so the Emery not only did well profit-wise, but it also exposed me to like thousands and thousands of people that um, I don't think had any idea who I was before and sort of established me like I kind of knew what I was doing. Um, it gave me a lot of self-confidence for sure. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Well, congratulations on that. So, um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That was the I real want, term, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. It sounds like it. So um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about our recommendations. Um, yeah. You've got a couple. I've got a few as well. So the first one that you wanted to recommend is an app. Um, it's called Duolingo. Oh, yeah. This is the best. So uh, get, we, we've been coming to France now for six years. Um and always somewhere between four and seven weeks at a time. And the number one question people always ask me, actually, they don't even ask it as a question. They just say like, oh, so you're totally fluent. Yes. And I'm like, oh my God, no. Um, thank God my boyfriend is basically fluent. Um, and I've learned more along the way, but, um, I've learned a great deal because of that app. I've actually was playing with it last night in super jet lag brain trying to tire myself out at 3 a.m. to go back to sleep. I pulled out my Duolingo app and was playing with it. It's just a really, really amazing language app, uh, and it's free, which is awesome. And you can um, link to some friends. So I'm, I'm linked with other friends on there so we can see how each other are doing. And it kind of builds a little bit of competition because you want to do better. Um, so that makes you learn more, obviously. Um, and it's tons of languages on there, not just French. But I've been using it for beefing up on my French vocabulary. And it's great because one of the things I really like about it is a lot of language apps um, teach you in one way. But Duolingo has you... Um, read like verbally, like there's a, you know, to your speaker. So they make you pronunciate things. Um, and then they say, you know, you did good or not. Um, 
you identify things just visually like salt, salt, you know, um, or dog, dog. And then later on, as you move along, you have to choose the correct sentence. So you have to understand, is that the right sentence for what they're saying? And then there are moments when you have to actually write it out. So you'd have to write out like the dog is black in French. Um, so it doesn't just uh, teach you like in one way. It makes you both identify visually and verbally and written. And um, it's definitely the most comprehensive language app I've ever used. I love it. Great recommendation. It's so good. Good one, um, for sure. I wanted to talk about All Points Patchwork, which is a new book by Diane Gilliland, also known as Sister Diane. I know Diane. Yeah, Diane is amazing. Um, I have tremendous respect for her. And this book is really cool. It's an English paper piecing book, which is a quilting technique where you hand sew um, shapes, usually hexagons, to one another, um, which is great for me. I am a person who hates... um, cutting things with a ruler and straight lines. (laughs) Um, And so you don't have to do that with these because you fold the paper around a paper, you fold the fabric around a paper template. And so your fabric can be cut imperfectly and the thinnest shape will still be perfect, which I love. So I've been doing it from Diane's recommendation for over a year now. And her book just came out and I got a copy, I bought a copy. And what's different about this book from the other, many other English paper piecing books that I've looked at and own is that this book teaches you how to design your own English paper piecing patterns. That's cool. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, here's a sheet of graph paper of hexagons. You can color them in, in different colors and then that's your quilt. Instead, it's like, here's how to actually draft a hexagon to the size that you want. And then here's how to make triangles that are going to fit in with that or diamond shapes that are going to fit with that or a, um, a pentagon. And here's how to make the pieces that will go next to it. And she shows you like, get out your compass, get out your oh protractor, That's awesome. the angles. And I've never seen a book that literally taught you how to be an English paper piecing designer, not just follow my patterns or just use my, you know, template and color it in in different shades. And so, you know, what your fabric choices will be, but actually design your own project or your own block, you know? Um, so I think that's really awesome. And yeah, that sounds like a great book. Yeah. Diane, she totally knows what she's talking about. She so totally I would, does. And I, was I would trust say, her. Yeah, she, she totally knows what she's talking about. And leave it to Diane to write a book that's not just a project book. <laughs> yeah. It's a reference book, which yeah. she and I have talked about at length. I feel like we both feel like in some ways the future of craft publishing is going to be in reference books because yep. those are books that stick around forever and ever like you'll never give it away because you're like well that's the shows me the technique so that I can go back and find figure out how to do this myself well it's it's funny you say that because the I've as you mentioned in the intro I have four books and two of them are reference books and they are by far my favorite of the two and I don't mean to diss my two project books but my love is definitely in my two reference books because um, maybe it's also kind of ties in with all of that love of like nerdy stuff that we were saying we like doing for our business, but, um, I love reference books and they're my favorite ones. And so being able to write two reference books was like a dream come true because project books will come and go for sure. But I like being able to write reference books is the best. Yeah. yeah. And in the age of instant download PDF patterns, yeah. it's just that I don't think the project book is going to last. I mean, I, I, don't, I either. don't think so. I mean, it's, it's still here now, but I don't know if it's going to be here in five years. I know. I agree with you totally. And they won't, they won't be in print in five years. My she can simple sewing is already out of print. So reference books will stay in print much longer and that's better for everybody. Absolutely. And her book is with story and story keeps their books in print for a really long time. So I know this book is going to stick around. So I I highly recommend it. Um, All right. So I think we're almost out of time. I want to talk about one more of your recommendations, which is Radio On app, because this is another app. I've never heard of this before. Yeah, I love this app as well. Again, these, neither of my recommendations for apps are sewing related, but um, they're um, this one, Radio On. So did you go to the app itself? No, I haven't visited. Okay. So it's if they kind of market it as like a alarm clock, like with a with it has a radio built into it. But I think that they're doing themselves a disservice because I never use it for like the clock capabilities. Um, what it is is basically a portal to thousands and thousands and thousands of radio stations that you can live stream from around the world, and it's really amazing. So you can go to the app and then choose your country, and then when you go to that country, it's like literally 
thousands of radio stations. Instead of trying to like Google, you know, uh, live stream radio station Nigeria. Okay, that's, that's going to be like just a hot mess. But you could just go to their app and you could go to the country that you want and then it would show you all of the radio stations that you can live stream. Um, and it's real time. It's just live stream from um, through their app to that radio station, wherever it may be in the world. And it's super, super cool. That yeah. is awesome. My husband will totally love that. Cause I he, love it. Yeah. He loves like, I mean, he listens to the BBC when he listens to the news on the radio because yep. he doesn't want to just hear like the NPR American centric version yes. of the news. He wants to hear what's really happening in the world. Yeah. So that's awesome. I started listening through it because I like being connected to France from afar and same thing, like hearing the real news from France and hearing like, what are the, what are the radio stations in France playing? Like, what are they listening to? Like, and that's, I find that fascinating. And so, um, I can just go from station to station to whatever. I have my favorites for sure, but, um, and you know, you don't have to choose France, but you can choose, there's just thousands to choose from. And it's a really, and again, um, the version I have is free. There are paid versions that you can get, I believe, but um, I've had it for years. I think it was one of the first apps I ever got. I'm going to so, tell him about it tonight. He's yeah, gonna, it's he's super cool. super happy. Yeah, <laughs> That's really it. exciting. Well, yeah. Christine, thank you so much for taking oh, the time to be you. on the Welsh Naps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Likewise, Abby. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Where can we connect with you online? Uh, well, my website is, everything's under my name. That's the easiest thing to do. So um, my website is just christinehaines.com, which is often misspelled. So it's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E-H-A-Y-N-E-S.com. And then my blog is um, christinehaines.blogspot.com. Um, both Twitter and Instagram are just my name. So at Christine Haines. Um, and then there's Facebook, which is Christine Haines Studio. Um, and I think that's about everywhere. Pinterest, again, just my name, Christine Haynes. It's all under my name. So if you just Google my name, you'll find pretty much everything. Awesome. That sounds super. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. And I invite you to visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you'll find helpful information for creative entrepreneurs, as well as tutorials and patterns for making stuffed animals and dolls. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next time.